Hello, and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Emily Eakins. I'm a research fellow here at Cato, and I'm going to be moderating today's book forum, where we'll be discussing Dr. Mark Zupam's new book, Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. Dr. Zupan's book looks at the sources of national decline. Typically, when people think about the sources of national decline, they often look outside of government, at special interest groups that try to co-opt government for their own benefit. However, Dr. Zupan takes a different approach and looks at the sources of national decline that come from inside government, from government insiders, and that may cause even more harm to countries and civilizations than the harms that come from outside of government. We're really looking forward um, to hearing from Dr. Zupan today. The way we'll be from the way we'll be framing today's book forum, first we're going to hear remarks from Dr. Zupan, and then we'll have comments from both Jonathan Rausch of the Brookings Institution and myself. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Zupan. Dr. Zupan began his tenure as the 14th president of Alfred University on July 1st, 2016. He was dean at the Simon Business School at the University of Rochester from January 1st, 2004. Zupan served as dean and professor of economics at the University of Arizona Elliers College of Management from 1997 to 2003. Before his appointment at Arizona, Zupan taught at the University of Southern, Southern California's Marshall School of Business, where he also served as Associate Dean of Master's Programs. He was also a teaching fellow in Harvard's Department of Economics program while pursuing his doctoral studies at MIT. And he has been a faculty member at the Amos Tuck School of Business Administration at Dartmouth University. Zupan has a bachelor's degree in economics from Harvard University and a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'll now turn the time over to Dr. Zupan. We look forward to this exciting conversation. Thanks, Emily, for the kind introduction. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, a special shout out to Jim Dorn, uh, who's in the back there, the editor of the Cato Journal, who provided me a space here while I was on sabbatical, um, and a lot of interesting leads and thoughts about articles, research I should be familiar with uh, to pursue this work. It's been a work in progress for about 30 years. Uh, but the sabbatical a year and a half ago finally provided the opportunity for these ideas to come to fruition. The book's probably gotten more topical in light of our most recent presidential election. Uh, when you look at the Pew uh, research poll that is done annually on trust in government, the percentage of Americans that trust government either all the time or most of the time is at an all-time low. Right now at 19% uh, as of 1966, and this poll's been done for over 50 years, it was at 77%. It's lower now than it was during Watergate. And there's probably some correlation, would argue, between uh, that assessment and the rise of candidates like 
uh, Donald J. Trump and Bernie Sanders. Like Emily said, though, the book deals with the topic that's been with us for a while. Uh, why do nations succeed and fail? And that's a topic that's been uh, extensively thought of, whether by economists, political scientists, sociologists, etc., philosophers. Looking at either autocracies or democracies or both. The economic model of politics has been around roughly 50 years. So it's grown out of a time where democracy has been the focus. And it conceptualizes politics uh, like other settings in life uh, that economists look at as a market. On the demand side are interests that compete for favorable rulings, policy decisions that generate positive wealth transfers for them. Whether these interests are business, businesses, labor unions, consumer activists, environmentalists, or general citizens. The supply side, according to this model, is comprised of rulers or polit uh, political leaders, but more broadly, we can also think of those that are appointed to execute policies, uh, bureaucrats, and then also, if we think more broadly, the military and public employees. Where things go wrong, as Emily mentioned earlier, the common belief among economists has been there's been capture of the system uh, from the demand side of this political marketplace. Uh, George Stigler, who um, won a Nobel Prize in economics for this idea, initially conceptualized um, this model and believed the producers, because they were more concentrated, would be most likely to co-opt the system. And very similar, in fact, to the way Karl Marx uh, looked at what happens in politics. That conceptualization got broadened by other economists like Gary Becker, um, Posner, um, Peltzman uh, to be expanded to include other potential capturing interest groups from the demand side. And we could certainly find cases where it seemed not producers, but consumers were co-opting the process for their benefit, or environmentalists, or one percenters, or economic elites. Any good criminal investigator, though, um, when you're trying to find out uh, who may be at fault, uh, what you look for is motive means an opportunity. And those are all uh, present on the supply side of politics. Had we not been looking at just the last 50 years, had we looked more broadly the last century, several centuries where autocracies were the norm, we would probably have a different uh, perspective on this marketplace. When autocracies were the norm, the belief would be that the rulers own the state, the country, and its citizens, um, as in Louis XIV saying, l'état c'est moi. And this is not to say the government insiders can't advance the public interest. Uh, they're human beings like the rest of us, uh, whether those human beings public, uh, uh, populate business settings, uh, everyday workplaces, uh, they have capacity for great good, also great evil. Anybody who's been uh, to the beaches at Omaha in Normandy uh, can't be but moved by what uh, people do to sacrifice for the greater good. Harold Laswell, the political scientist, uh, to paraphrase his definition of politics, it was who gets what, how, why, when, and where. 
And what this book does is look at those fundamental questions. If we're to pry open the black box on the supply side, who is it? What and why? Uh, may they be motivated uh, to co-opt the system? How do they do it? And when and where have they done it? And it's an important enough question. In the developed world, now government outlays account for 50% of GDP and 28% of the workforce. Who is on the supply side? In autocracies, we think of rulers and their coterie. In democracies, we think of elected officials. As people like Niskanen and James Q. Wilson have pointed out, we also have to worry about uh, people that populate our bureaucracies. Uh, they aren't perfectly policed. They have some latitude to design and implement policies. Also, public employees in the military. There was a recent book review uh, done of uh, the Praetorian Guard in the Roman Empire and the role they played in both figuring out who is going to be in power or stay in power um, in many cases to the detriment of the Roman citizenry. There have been other similar reviews of a recent book that came out on Alexander the Great's army or the elite military troops uh, that defended the Tsar. The supply side shows up in a few places. Um, and this is what first got me started on the question back in the 80s with a colleague, Joe Colt looking in democratic settings. Uh, we were trying to test George Stigler's model. And uh, what other economists had done was to try to find out to what extent interest groups could actually explain individual issue outcomes. So we started looking at voting on uh, strip mining legislation. And we were amazed while there was some explanatory power from the demand side, it was surprisingly limited. And it also surprised us to what extent we could explain senators' votes on strip mining legislation with how they voted on abortion bills. So there was something about these ideological motives. Perhaps they were policed at around election time as opposed to individual issues. But they seemed to matter. And even when we looked at the broader bundles that we elect in congressional settings and democracies, there seemed to be in present-day United States a fair bit of latitude whether Republican or Democrat, they had different viewpoints to affect, to, to pursue their non-pecuniary objectives. What are the motives? Uh, we usually think of uh, kleptocracy as a pecuniary motive, and there's certainly examples we could point to and that play out in the daily press. Most recently, rulers in places or uh, officials in places like Malaysia or what was revealed in the Panama Papers. Uh, historically, we can point to the Marcos family, or Croesus, or even further back, um, uh, Henshan in China, um, a Trujillo in um, the Dominican Republic. At one point, his family wealth was 100% of GDP of his country, and he accounted for 60% of the hiring decisions by estimates made by Achimoglu and Robinson. So, and we certainly can find examples of that. But we also have to leave room for non-pecuniary motives, uh, again, for good or for ill. And we can certainly point to the killing Mao did, uh, what Hitler accomplished once in power and was able to move Germany from a, a democracy to an autocracy. And it's not to say the capture just occurs on the supply side or just occurs on the demand side. 
Uh, the book argues we often see symbiotic cases. That the best way to think about it, it's like DNA. Uh, there are four nucleotide bases. Uh, cytosine only bonds with guanine. Timine only bonds with adenine. So even if the capture occurs on the demand side, we should expect to see something awry on the supply side. Or if the capture is motivated from the supply side, there'll be something uh, a kilter on the demand side. Uh, Rose and Milton Friedman had this observation that there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. And other Washington pundits have observed the staying power of policies, even though the explanations may vary over time why they have their uh, lasting nature. But when we think about both sides and what the vested interests might be in keeping those policies in place, that inertia becomes a little bit easier to understand. Where and when has it occurred? Um, if you look at Paul Kennedy's seminal work, and it's now been 30 years, uh, the rise and fall of great powers, what's striking in rereading his two principal stories, uh, and he goes back to 1400, 1500, and asks the fundamental question, if we were to predict at that point what would be the dominant powers nowadays, uh, we would pick China and we would pick the Ottoman Empire. And how they unwound themselves, it's hard not to construe that as a supply-side story. From looking at the population, the technological advances, the military prowess of the Chinese empire, and then how under the Ming dynasty they started to turn inward, due to either, uh, and this is what Francis Fukuyama calls the bad emperor problem, um, in terms of ceasing shipbuilding, uh, moving, uh, restricting trade, uh, shifting uh, the border inward so as to restrict trade, the skepticism about entrepreneurship that the bureaucracy started to weigh in on, and the lassitude that started to set in when it came time to supporting technological innovation. Likewise, in the Ottoman Empire, um, I think it's Achimoglu that calls it the idiot sultan problem. And there were certainly cases we could point to in succession planning that wasn't well thought out that often led to who could get to Istanbul or Constantinople the fastest with the mostest because of the number of uh, male heirs uh, to a sultan. But also the bureaucracy, uh, the Janissaries, the elite fighting troop. The Ottomans figured out a very creative way to promote meritocracy and to avoid favoritism. Uh, so they would raid Christian lands uh, to identify able-bodied males that could serve in their army and then brought them back to Constantinople to train them and indoctrinate them. It was a one-generation-based military. It was a feared fighting force uh, that ensured the spread of the Ottoman Empire. But once in place, uh, some of the seeds of the decay lay with the Janissaries. It became a non-hereditary um, if I'm here, why not my son? And then the benefits the Janissary started to bargain for. Two reform-minded uh, sultans were murdered, attempting to promote reforms. Uh, and the Ottoman Empire became the sick man of Europe. But it wasn't just the Janissaries, also the large army of scribes who were threatened by the printing press and similar worries in Ming China about the spread of information. So as Achimoglu and Robinson talk about, there were, the Ottoman Empire went 225 years without a printing press. Uh, 
by 1800, only 2% of the empire was literate, whereas places like Germany and England were, had 50% literacy rates. Very much a supply-side story if you read the book 30 years later. The New Kingdom of Ancient Egypt, the latest statue we think has just been found of Ramses II. Uh, Shelley called him Ozymandias, uh, the Greek name in his uh, famous poem. Beyond his military conquests, though, when you look at the histories and the extensive um, building projects, the palaces, the self-aggrandizement, putting a larger priesthood on the payroll, uh, part of the public employment was uh, 30%. Um, was accounted for by part, land ownership, 30% was accounted for by priests, um, by scholars that have studied that period. It became increasingly hard to sustain under the new kingdom the expenses that went with it. The Ancien Regime under the Bourbons, the Venetian Republic, uh, Truillo again in the Dominican Republic, but also democratic examples. And Steve Walters is back there too and gave a marvelous book a year and a half ago about uh, boom and bust towns in the United States, looking at places like Boston and San Francisco and when they became extractive, uh, an example being uh, Curly in Boston that has a eponymous um, effect named after him for the ability to not only self-aggrandize but also to chase out opponents. And then looking closer to home, uh, my hometown until recently was Rochester, New York, um, and the state of New York, that a public investment uh, made it a boomtown. The Erie Canal lowered transportation costs by 90%. Rochester went from 15 people in 1817 to being the United States' 13th largest city by 1840. Growth, the advent of railroads, slowly um, uh, loosened some of Rochester's preeminence. But Rochester and the rest of upstate New York don't start falling off the wagon until the 1940s and the 1950s. And it's a story that can't be connected to the demise of Kodak or Bausch and Lomb or Carrier, but can more generally be correlated to New York State becoming a high-tax state. A recent book, too, by uh, Stephen Moore, Sinkerfield, Brown, and Laffer look at uh, nine states without income tax versus the 10 highest income tax states, growth rates, in-migration rates. Um, And a very similar story was just in Seattle last week for an alumni event and striking how many cranes are there uh, that are largely absent in my former hometown of Rochester. More modern examples, we read about them in the news, whether they're autocracies or democracies. Uh, North Korea, three generations of the Kims. Russia, uh, Putin and the Patrizzi boys. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, by conservative estimates, owns 33% of their country. Uh, What Chavez and Maduro have been doing in Venezuela. But it applies to democracies, too. In India, most recent year that a survey has been taken, 54% of citizens report having to pay for bribe to get a public service. Even higher for the lowest income class, 75%. Of recent electoral candidates were under criminal indictment. It pays to be in the assembly there when you look at asset growth, the recent journal of political economy. 
article. Or you look at Argentina, uh, Perón's or Kirchner's more recently, and anybody who's traveled to Argentina, how under the Kirchner's there were three different exchange rates, and the best one was typically the corner bakery, uh, where uh, the sweets are good in Argentina, uh, but the foreign exchange was even, even uh, trading more briskly. Some of the challenges in the EU, EU uh, Hans Werner Zim in his book, uh, the Euro trap and some of the challenges the European Union has faced, especially, especially in the periphery countries. And these issues apply to China and the US, whether we look at China um, under Mao or more recently under Xi. Uh, an interesting read is the most recent economist issue and the consolidation of power under Xi and the upcoming Congress in the fall. Um, and the worries, will that trend continue as opposed to any potential for liberalization? But also in the United States, there's a chapter that deals with some of the challenges we face in the world's largest democracy, whether it's a more professional Congress and tenure lengths of being roughly doubled over the last 100 years. Robert Caro has a wonderful book on Lyndon Johnson, how he was one of the first to figure out if you could do facilitation service as well. It would insulate you from any of the voting that, uh, the roll call voting that you undertook, and it would increase your tenure and your political power. Uh, whether you look at unfunded pension liabilities, um, Paul Krugman will argue it's only in Detroit, uh, but we, whether it's failing cities like Stockton and San Bernardino and Vallejo in California or Puerto Rico or Philadelphia, yesterday's news in New Jersey, uh, Dallas or Houston, Josh Rao and uh, Robert Novi Marx, Josh is at Stanford, Robert at University of Rochester, estimate these unfunded liabilities to be our second biggest fiscal challenge in the United States, conservatively at $5 trillion. Whether you look at how more monopolized our education sector has gotten, um, the number of districts since 1950 uh, has decreased by over 80%. We're spending in real terms per student three times more than in 1960. Uh, public sector unionization rates um, and some of the challenges that uh, Daniel DeSalvo has pointed to. There's some issues for us to really need, that we need to think about on the supply side in the United States. It's a simple book in one respect. There's only one figure, one equation, <laughs> and two tables. And here's the equation. Just to conceptualize, if we're to capture the profit that government insiders glean, it's a combination of how much potential there is to be captured, the slack on the supply side, how imperfectly competitive, where the slack can vary from zero to one, with zero being no slack at all, perfectly policed supply side, one being uh, perfectly untethered. And then how much interest is there in exploiting the slack? Uh, Michael Sandel, uh, earlier philosophers like Aristotle, will also argue about the importance of needing to instill civic-mindedness, uh, relying on vir virtue. So even when there is slack, we can rely on that factor to diminish the chance that those on the supply side will operate to the, uh, not to the benefit of the public interest. There's a chapter on what drives the potential gains, uh, the perks, uh, the patronage, the bureaucracy, the transactions costs. Uh, 
potentially, um, and this is something that uh, a ruler in Persia, uh, Carissus, uh, argued in the 500 uh, AD that if I let the economy grow, uh, that'll mean more tax revenue for me. So there's a potential, uh, one could argue, have an economy be as productive and that'll allow the greatest gains to the government insiders. But their transactions costs with operating a government. Uh, tax and transfer programs, Butch Browning at Texas A&M has studied these probably the most extensively. How porous is Oaken's leaky bucket? And we'll argue that if we want to transfer 50 cents, it basically chews up $1.50 to create that transfer. So two-thirds of, uh, of, uh, of the tax gets chewed up along the way, either in disincentive effects or the management of the tax and transfer policies. There are economists like Gary Becker um, and Steve Whitman that will argue, just like other markets, Adam Smith's invisible hand should work. Competition should end up leading us to the best of all possible worlds, because the group that has the most interest in a piece of legislation will bid the most for the favorable legislation. I uh, would argue there are too many examples to the contrary, and Mansur Olson was one of the first to point this out. The key thing in politics is political clout, and economic stakes do not correlate one-to-one -one with political clout. On optimality grounds, there's no reason why we should have sugar quotas. Uh, the damage done to American sugar consumers far exceeds the benefit to American sugar producers. In addition to the damage we do to poor countries externally, like Haiti and the Philippines. But the political cloud of producers outweighs the $55 each family in the United States loses from the actions of producers and the maintenance of those quotas. Public goods, when I teach economics to students, this is one of the classic reasons why government should intervene. And from a purely economic reason, you would argue public goods will be underprovided. But then when we begin to think of them from a political economy point of view, there are reasons why we should worry like Eisenhower about the military industrial complex. From political economy perspective, you want to also worry about the political cloud of producers of those goods, consumers of those goods, and average taxpayers. And one could argue taxpayers are the most diffuse interest group. And the reasons why we see programs like the F-35 and the F-22 continue despite massive cost overruns and quality controls. And producers know this. Uh, the B-1 bomber, Rockwell International, the parts on this plane spanned 48 states and over 400 congressional districts. At Rockwell International headquarters, there was a picture of the plane and a map of the United States and a string that connected each part on the plane with the congressional district and the state where that part was manufactured. If the part could come from a place that both the Senate Armed Services Chair and the House Armed Services Chair resided, that was known in the industry as a double hitter. Common pool problem, and this is what economists, political scientists call the law of one over n. Uh, Russ Roberts has this wonderful analogy that when we start going out to dinner with 99 or 434 of our closest friends and agree to split the bill, you start getting some unusual behavior. I lived for a while in LA and can tell you LA is one of the most challenged places because of the geographic spread to build a subway. But a subway was built 
haven't looked more recently at the studies, but at the time, more rider, 90% uh, of the funding came from elsewhere, outside of LA. 10% came from LA. The 10% that came from LA uh, was paid for by, partially by raising bus fares that led to less ridership on buses than was picked up on the subway system there. These apply in autocracies, democracies, these common pool problems. Um, and uh, there's a recent book out, too, by a political scientist, Chris Berry, that points out to how single unit districts, there are now 90,000 districts in the country. We add one every 18 hours. Chicago be became one of our highest uh, sales tax cities, partly because there are separate uh, county, uh, Cook County public safety and hospital tax districts. Um, there's a, um, a park district, and if they all get to fish from the same pool, and the problems get exacerbated if the elections for the individuals that oversee the districts don't occur contemporaneously. Factors affecting slack, they're natural curbs. Uh, there's a fascinating Tunisian scholar from 1300s who posited uh, civilizations will last for four generations. You'll come in with fervor, new ideas, how to organize society, but then those in power acquire creature comforts, leads to higher taxes. Uh, the higher taxes diminish industry, lead a new group to come in. Ibn Khaldun, uh, who's often considered the father of modern-day sociology, was somebody Art Laffer drew on. Our founders worried about humanly designed curbs, a citizen mobility, Tebow effects, benchmarks. Uh, Deng and going to Singapore and Japan helped move communist China to liberalizing that marketplace. India and seeing nearby growth rates in places like Pakistan exceeding theirs was a key impetus to their modern, modernizing. It's the old Mark Twain quote, there's nothing so annoying as a good example. And there's a quasi-market for control. We don't see the green uh, male, the buyouts in the corporate world. Uh, there are reasons for that, because power is the currency of the realm in politics. Once you give up power, you give up the ability to write the rules. And so anything you're promised, there isn't third-party enforcement that those promises will be kept. And we can point to examples like Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette that were promised one thing and ended up getting another, or Charles I. One of the two tables, and this may seem incredibly simple, but let me just, some fundamental conclusions. For, as of the fall 2014, based on a categorization of democracies, autocracies, done by some noted political scientists, how long had the regime been in power? And then Transparency International, headquartered out of Germany, has been developing a, a, a compendium of surveys. How, how much integrity is there in the public sector from none, zero to 100? And it may seem pretty obvious. Democracies with more checks and balances, regimes are in power less. But some of the fundamental points that come out of this, I think this is the first study done that conclusively shows that the checks and balances our founders envisioned would help, that people are not angels. If unconstrained like autocracies, uh, you end up nowhere close to 100 in terms of transparency international scores. Democracy is an improvement. Second conclusion. 
democracy is not optimal. Uh, the average democracy has a transparency international score less than 50, less than the midpoint. A quarter of democracies out there are less than the average autocracy. And there are certainly some autocracies like Singapore and Botswana that do well in terms of integrity, uh, but on average, they're lower than democracy. So Francis Fukuyama had a book a few years ago how democracy would be the socioeconomic terminus. Uh, the table one results say we can't be assured of democracy by the people does not automatically ensure government for the people. Some good news with the results, when you look over time, and admittedly, Transparency International has been around only 20 years, integrity has been improving at three times the rate in democracies than in autocracies. Integrity is not the same thing as trust. So what the Pew Research Center measures is not the same thing as what Transparency International measures. Government may be doing things efficiently, and yet people may still have a negative feeling about what government is doing. When you look at changes as opposed to levels, either autocracies or democracies or across all countries, the more you can improve integrity, it tends to increase your tenure. It tends to buy you more time and power. And then we can't be assured by electoral competition uh, to ensure integrity and trust. Italy's changed powers at the top 44 times. It's almost a joke um, since World War II. And yet, uh, they rate close to being economically unfree. Below the surface, below the easy-to-measure level, there's still a lot of rigidity built into the Italian system on the supply side. Same in Mexico. We've changed leaders there every six years, or in Greece, the average tenure, when you look at the Transparency International um, integrity scores, they're pretty low, close to what autocracies average. And then the last point, public sector integrity is more stable in democracies than autocracies. Correlations over time uh, are closer to one in democracies. A leader can less change the system than in autocracies. And that's either for good or bad, because there are current democracies like Paraguay and Papua New Guinea that are stuck at low levels of public sector integrity. Others like Denmark and New Zealand democracies that persist at high levels of public sector integrity. And then the very last uh, two pages. The big question for us is why is democracy spreading? Uh, why from virtually none in 1800 uh, to now over uh, close to two-thirds of the nations around the world. Was it just a fluke and something that then we started learning? Uh, would argue that there's probably more of a Doug North institutional explanation based on opportunity cost, uh, based on people becoming more productive, whether it's through trade, mobility, education, specialization, that you have to give the populace more skin in the game if you're to realize uh, greater gains, and to avoid a quasi-market for uh, political control. Uh, Achimogu and Robinson have looked at this recently. You can't find the relationship, that relationship, on a year-to-year -year or decade-to-decade -decade basis. You have to look over a longer time horizon. And it's still an area that we're investigating. And then the fundamental point, government by the people is not the same as government for the people. Last chapter talks about how do we form a more perfect union, some potential thoughts. 
once uh, we received with the colleague is internal study at the U.S. Postal Service. At the time, 10% of their routes were contracted out at 50% the cost and at higher quality. It was difficult to get the study. We got it almost by chance. But where there are opportunities to promote more competition, we should be open to them. Limiting opportunities to insulate people for life, whether it's term limits or other means. Um, Gary Leibcap, Richard Johnson have looked at uh, the, the civil service, well-intentioned. When Lincoln came to office, the big surprise was all the office keepers, office seekers that showed up. Um, and Leibcap and Johnson, Ron Johnson will argue it was an attempt to, because as government grew and the nation grew, you had to focus your efforts on more activities besides patronage and filling offices. It became more meritocracy, like the Yanisaries, well-intentioned. But Leibcap Johnson will argue it also became more insulated over time with its consequences. In the state of New York, over the past year and a half, we've had both the number two and the number three legislator or policymaker lose office, one a Democrat, one a Republican. And both you could pin the story on how long they were in office and some of the pitfalls that went with it. Curtailing supply-side monopolies. Uh, Grover Cleveland said a public office is a public trust. We do have to think about uh, to what extent do we allow public trust. We have antitrust and private sector marketplaces. Some of the same worries should motivate us on the supply side in the political marketplace, especially because public employees get two bites at the apple. Uh, like Daniel DeSalvo has pointed to in Terry Moe, they not only get to collectively bargain, but there's an electoral link that can also influence, that can make the agents the principals as opposed to the agents. And uh, what Sarah Chase in her um, book will talk about, about how money starts flowing in the reverse direction you'd expect it to. Institutional rules matter, whether it's proportional democracy versus representative. Pearson Tabellini have looked. Proportional democracies, governments spend more, debts are higher per GDP. They lock in interest groups more easily. There are less checks and balances in parliamentary democracies as opposed to presidential. You get higher spending looking across time, across nations. The further look for checks and balances, whether what Switzerland's done recently with the double majority um, uh, spending break rule that's dramatically decreased the rate of government spending relative to the rest of Europe and started to decrease their debt level relative to GDP. Facilitating benchmarking. Um, groups like Transparency International, uh, Economic Freedom of the World, International Economic Freedom should be applauded uh, for starting to better keep track. And this was our founder's intent in setting up individual states where experimentation comparisons to, could occur. And while, some while it may be incredibly difficult to do, but maybe some further thought too about the possibility of buyouts, they look unseemly in the political world. Uh, but think about how much angst and time and resources we're currently devoting to North Korea and the latest generation of Kims. This is a guy who loves Emmentaler cheese from the days he was a student there. Uh, a lot of Emmentaler gets imported into the country while the rest of the populace can't. Is there even a possibility of a third party guarantee and what kind of payment would it take? <laughs> Probably difficult to think of because power um, has some unique currency that's hard to replicate in the non-political world. 
So thank you for the opportunity. We'll look forward to the comments and questions. Thank you very much, Mark. It was fascinating. Um, next, we're going to be hearing from Jonathan Rausch, um, a graduate of Yale University who worked at Winston-Salem Journal in North Carolina for the National Journal Magazine and later for The Economist Magazine as a freelance writer. Rausch is currently a contributing editor of National Journal and The Atlantic. He is the author of several books and many articles on public policy, culture, and economics. He is also a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution in Governance Studies and a vice president of the Independent Gay Forum. Rausch is also the author of five books, including Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, Expanded Edition from Cato and Political Realism, How Hacks, Machine, uh, How Hacks Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals Can Strengthen American Democracy. I'll turn the time now over to Jonathan. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Mark. Thank you all for, for coming. Um, I was sent this book by John Samples of Cato, who asked if I wanted to comment on it. And I figured, well, you know, I'll glance at it and set it aside and get to it in the next couple weeks. And then three and a half hours later, I look up, and I've mostly finished the book and taken bundles of notes on it. And I think, hell yeah, this is a good book. Uh, this, is a good, this is a book to comment on. Uh, it's a short book. But it's absolutely packed with information, with hard thinking. Its examples, as you can see, date from ancient times to modern. Its sweep is admirable. There is tons here that you will learn uh, in, Mark, in Mark Zupan's, do you pronounce it Zupan or Zupan? Zupan, well, um, forgive me if I mispronounce it. But there's ton, I can pronounce Mark. And there is tons that you will learn from Mark's book. Um, that said, because time is short and because it makes for better TV uh, and more interesting dialogue, I want to focus on an aspect of the book which I think is interesting and which to some extent I think I may disagree with. And it also may challenge some of you in the audience a little bit. And that's the larger framework in which the book is embedded. Uh, there are two particular two figures lurking in the background here of this book. One is mentioned in it, one is not, but I think they're both kind of important to triangulate the book against in understanding where it's coming from. The first of those people is an economist by the name of Mansur Olson, who was mentioned in Mark's presentation a few minutes ago. Olson began his work in the 60s and continued it on through the 80s, a remarkable man who uh, pointed out that what happens to societies over time is that they accumulate interest groups, cartels, what he called collectives, uh, coalitions for collective action. And they lock in subsidies and programs. And over time, this will tend to ossify societies. And he pointed out that, in fact, historically, the way societies tend to get out of this is not very good. Tyrannical rule or war that sweeps away existing structures. Thus, over time, you would have a tendency for economies to slow down and ossify. It's a very important theory. It stood the time, I think, fairly well. If you look at countries, for example, like Japan, if you look at places like the European Union, and in some ways, the United States. And of course, it heavily figures in the background in the kinds of theories that Mark writes about. Mark, interestingly, takes the ideas um, that Olson pioneers on the demand side and looks at the supply side. He looks at how bureaucrats, public officials, and so on are also part of this game. But it's the same big story. I'm a fan of Mansur Olson. I wrote a book about his work. It's called Governments and Why Washington Stopped Working. Um, 
a lot of people in this room, I think, are fans of Olson, but, but there's an interesting difference, I think, between Olson and the structure of Mark Zupan's book. Um, Olson is a theory of social development, not of social justice. There is no moralistic element, particularly, in Olson's work. He's talking about why economies slow down, but he's not telling you that that's particularly unjust or that it in some way betrays the public interest. He just thinks it's a problem, and it's something that we need to figure out how to deal with. Um, we, and you can't wish it away. It's, he sees it as a fundamental change in society. It's not just things that people in government are doing. It's not just things a few interest groups are doing. It's a change in social organization over time. So uh, there's a different way to think about this. And here's where we come to the second figure lurking in the background of this book, one whose name may surprise you, and that's Ralph Nader. Now, Nader is, of course, a left-wing progressive consumer activist in on most, if not all, respects. I think he'd disagree with Mark and many of the people in this room. But one of the things that I thought I learned from this book was how deeply the progressive thinking of the last 100 years, and especially the last 40 or 50 years, has penetrated libertarian world. So progressive thinking has the idea that there is something out there called the public interest. It's not necessarily the same as the people's will, but it's something that's good for society. And we should, if we were well-informed and knew what was good for us, all agree on what the public interest is. And that's what government should serve, as opposed to being, say, a big forum for transactional politics, where people do deals and try to cut compromises and get along. That's a fundamental point of the progressive worldview, which interestingly, I think, a lot of the libertarian world simply absorbed and adopted without asking many questions about it. Now, Mark Supan and I think Ralph Nader would define the public interest in somewhat different ways. Mark's definition is, he, he says, the public interest means maximizing society's net economic benefits, pecuniary and non-pecuniary. Many people would disagree with an economization of the public interest, but it's a definition. And I think most libertarians would tend to identify the public interest with the workings of free market forces, both on justice grounds and on efficiency grounds. The progressive left, on the other hand, would identify the public interest with egalitarianism and the serving of larger social justice and being anti-corporate and restraining the excesses of capitalism. Set that aside, however, and you have the same basic idea, which is that there's a big abstract thing out there to which we should try to get government to conform. And if it doesn't conform to that, we should be upset about it. This brings to Marx's book a element of moralism which is absent, I think, in, or largely absent in Mansur Olson's. Um, he compares, for example, rent-seeking to crime. Um, now, that's an economic comparison, I understand, but it also conveys inevitable moral overtones. He compares it at another stage to cancer, a form of parasitism. Again, that can be used judge non-judgmentally, but it's a pretty strong image in today's world. And of course, the idea of the inside job, which is the title of the book, is that you've got bad people getting away with something at the expense of everybody else. Um, so you get this kind of moralism about government on both sides of the line. And I would argue that that is the prevalent paradigm for thinking about government in today's world. I would further argue that that is in some ways unfortunate. Now, here I have to step back and point out that I wrote a book called Government's End, also known as Demosclerosis, which itself has the chapter title, for example, The Parasite Economy. 
it likens rent seekers in an economic sense to parasites and says that a lot of rent seeking will slow down economic growth and so on. What I think I've learned since then is that I placed insufficient emphasis, though it was in the book, but I placed insufficient emphasis on the good side of the parasite economy. There are things we think it to, that we need it to do, and it does have important social roles. Rent seeking has pluses as well as minuses. It's not a good thing in itself. It's not that we should all go out and say, let's all seek more rents. That's a very bad idea. However, it does serve some needed functions. It stabilizes society, for example, by creating stakes. People who are invested in getting stuff from government and from each other are people who are going to be involved in the political process. That tends to be stabilizing in countries that don't have that tend over time to have a lot of internal instability. Second, this allows for rent seeking and, and, um, and its related phenomenon allow for transactional politics. Rents are stuff you can trade, right? It's hard to trade ideological goods like, you know, issues like abortion. But earmarks, fine. Um, that's the stuff that allows you to create compromise, to buy off opponents. And I would point out that if you want to do political reforms of the kind that are necessary to overmaster the forces that are strangling government, if you want to pass a debt limit bill, if you want to restrain the growth of entitlements, if you want to deregulate, if you want to do most of the things, for example, that free marketers in the current Congress want to do, you're going to have to offer some incentives to people who are taking some very tough votes and can expect primaries in their districts. So that's something transactional politics is very good at. So if you can get some entitlement reform at the cost of a new runway in somebody's or a new post office in someone's district, it's a very good deal. When you take away those tools, when you begin to demonize those tools, you wind up demonizing transactional politics itself. And the result of that is not smaller government, it's government on autopilot that grows and grows and grows, can't set priorities, and gets more and more in the way. More fundamentally, I've also become a critic in my old age of the whole abstract notion of the public interest. I've come to think that it does more harm than good, and it's probably just wrong, because it attempts to make politics conform in ways that are not realistic. It delegitimizes and demonizes legitimate disagreement. Of course, we don't agree about the goods of society and ourselves and the things that we do and don't deserve. Um, the idea that there's a public interest out there to which we all should conform essentially allows us to believe we've got the public uh, interest in mind. The other person is just self-seeking. That is bad for our politics, and I think delegitimizes important um, conversations. Second. Public interest rhetoric tends to empower demagogues because they're the people who run around um, and claim to speak for the public. Some of you will know to whom I'm alluding, but we don't need to get political in this talk. But again and again, public interest is a very handle candy cudgel for demagogues, populists, and authoritarians to use. So it's a dangerous idea in that sense. Third, it inspires unrealistic notions about reforms and unrealistic public expectations. It leads people to think that if you just elect better people or make some changes, then instead of having messy government with lots of compromise and inefficiency, you'll have something sleek and beautiful that will meet the public's expectations, solve problems. And you also get inspiration for a whole lot of reforms in which smart people dream up ways that would make government serve the public interest better, forgetting about political incentives. There are lots of examples of that, many of them on the progressive left, but I'd argue that some also are on the right. The abolition, for example, of earmarks was something the conservatives were big fans of. Term limits, which I think would make these problems worse and not better by empowering lobbyists and staff at the expense of well-informed 
uh, and uh, well-informed legislatures would probably make these things worse, and so on. So I don't want to exaggerate my disagreements with, with the book. In fact, it's an admirable book, and there's so much that we do agree on. Uh, and it's such an important book, and it's such an important corrective to those who naively believe that government is a transparent conveyor of popular wishes. We, of course, all know that that's not true, and Mark Zupan gives us better understanding of why that's not true. And of course, some of his recommendations, I think, are smart, some not so smart. That's a different conversation. That said, I'd like to suggest that in the big scheme of things, we'd all be well advised to remember Mansur Olson and to take our cues from him. And to remember to try to set our moralism aside when we focus on these problems and focus on realism. I think that libertarian, libertarianism and free market ideas on the model of anti-government sort of progressivism, but an anti-government version of progressivism is a bad idea and is likely to fail. Thanks. Thank you, Jonathan. So as I mentioned earlier, um, I have the opportunity today to both moderate and also comment on the book. So I'll now be changing roles um, in that vein. I also have an academic background. I have a PhD in political science, and my research focuses on public opinion research. So I read this book through um, kind of that unique lens of public opinion. I found the book absolutely fascinating. Like Jonathan, I took copious notes. Um, there's so much to learn from this book and a lot of just interesting facts throughout history of ancient regi regimes as well as the present. So I highly recommend um, taking a look at the book um, and reading it. Um, but first, I want to start by saying also how much I appreciated the framing of this book. Typically, when um, regular Americans think about failures of democratic government to be responsive and to be accountable to the people, the assumption is um, that the problems come from the outside in that special interest groups, the wealthy, the politically connected, the 1%, use their wealth and power to try to buy access to politicians and political insiders to get special favors that aggrandize themselves. That is the common story. Um, but what Mark does differently is he focuses instead on uh, the insiders within government and makes a compelling case that perhaps that actually could be even more deleterious than the special interests on the outside um, in I exploiting government for their own purposes. Um, when you think about it, Donald Trump throughout the, uh, throughout the campaign appealed to many of his supporters by saying, look, I'm so rich, nobody's going to buy me, quote. Nobody's going to buy me. Um, people liked that. Um, a lot of people believe that if only we could do a better job limiting campaign spending, campaign um, donations, and campaign finance more generally, then finally we would make government more accountable and more responsive to the people. There are some problems with this reasoning, however. Um, the first is that campaign finance regulations often aren't really able to achieve what they hope to achieve, um, and that in some cases risk compromising the freedom of speech and freedom of expression that is absolutely essential to a free society and a functioning democracy. Uh, and uh, as a consequence, um, even if we were to completely stamp out this problem, 
and that outside special interest groups were not able to exert undue influence on government, Mark's book points out that we would still have a serious problem in which government would be able to use its power um, to benefit those on the inside. The interesting thesis of the book is that the more that government is able to do in terms of the regulations that it passes, passes, the money that it spends, the provisions and services that it offers, the more opportunities there are for this to occur. So a striking example, I thought, was the example Mark gave of India um, that was particularly illustrative. Um, it's a large democracy that ranks, quote, poorly um, for doing business. It requires 60 state approvals in order to build a skyscraper. And as a result, that takes about 10 years to build. So what might that incentivize? All that red tape, 60 different state approvals, bribery, and illegal activities. And who does that benefit? It benefits the people who already have the resources, who already have the connections that are able to access that. And as Mark cites in a survey, 54% of surveyed Indians report having paid a bribe in the past year. That's not just in their lifetime, but in the past year that I thought was striking, and that it was even worse for the poor and the vulnerable. Um, according to that survey, those that were, quote, slum dwellers, 75% Three-fourths said they had paid a bribe to obtain a basic service like kerosene. Um, there was a lot of focus in the book um, on both autocracies and democracies and um, the systems of government somewhere in between. However, I think many people find it unremarkable that autocracies fail to be responsive to the people. And autocracies, if it's not the insiders that are co-opting government for their own ben benefit, I mean, who, who is it? Um, so I found it unremarkable that Mubarak, um, the former leader of Egypt, had amassed a fortune of $70 billion. It is striking, $70 billion is quite a lot of money, um, but we would expect that in autocracies where they're not accountable. So someone might argue, well, if only we brought democracy to that country, we would solve that problem because people could vote out of office those leaders that were trying to abuse their power. Now, Mark addresses that, this in his book, where he, said, where he argues that as you do transition from an autocracy to a democracy, you do get more accountability. And so that in that equation that Mark sets up, that helps explain how government insiders can profit. Um, as accountability goes up with democracy, it is true that there's less to be gained. And so I thought an interesting example that he gave was in Kenya that has gone in and out of democracy several times that a study found that during, um, during a time where it was an autocracy, the political leaders, um, we, they found that political districts that shared the ethnicity with the political leader received five times the amount of infrastructure spending as political districts that did not share the ethnicity with the political leader. But when Kenya shifted from autocracy to democracy, those differences evaporated and it became proportional and equitable. So certainly democracies um, does inject some greater degree of accountability. However, what I found the most remarkable about this book is that even democracies fail to, to um, be responsive to 
uh, to create a system in which political leaders are responsible, uh, responsive and accountable to the people. And that this occurs for reasons entirely separate from special interest groups. That even if we were to solve that problem, this would still exist. And that the insiders in even democratic governments could cause even more problems than um, these special interest groups. I think a little bit more detail could be spent, maybe we can do that during the Q&A session, to discuss, to explain why the problems that are present in autocracies persist, even to a lesser extent, in democratic regimes. And that why even democratic regimes fail to solve these problems. So I thought the mo some of the more compelling examples in the book included democracies like Venezuela, Argentina, Greece, India, and what we have seen in those countries is that in, uh, insiders nationalize large swaths of the economy. They replace, um, they replace judges. They balloon government spending and debt, inflate the currency, renege on contracts, set price controls on food and electricity. Um, and the, uh, the consequences are you know, pretty predictable in that uh, GDP goes down, inflation increases, um, there's rationing, there's shortages, and the people become poorer, and there's more suffering. I think what was even more compelling, though, are democracies that are more stable, like the United States. The extent to which this can, um, issues like this, where government insiders are able to exploit government for their own benefit, occurs even in the United States. So some of the uh, statistics that is provided in the book, we see that U.S. senators earn a rate of return on their investments. It's about 12.3%. And members of the House of Representatives earn um, a rate of interest six percentage points above the average, which is doing pretty well. Um, and probably not random chance. Um, you give the example of President Johnson, who used his, pre uh, his political clout to be able to help his wife's applications for radio and TV stations in Austin, Texas, to be approved, and then use that political clout to, to channel or funnel um, advertising to those radio stations, and was able to amass a, a fortune of about $100 million. Now, that's far less than Mubarak's 70 billion with a B, but still, it's a fair amount of money, $100 million. Um, and you gave a variety of examples. These are not random, that we see a lot of examples where even in a stable democracy, political leaders, regulators, insiders, bureaucrats are able to use the system for their own benefit. And the consequences are also dire. In the US, we have unfunded liabilities, or in other words, unfunded promised benefits to public employees, things like pensions that we promise to pay people in the future but right now have no way to pay them, um, that total $5 trillion, which is the same as 29% of the entire US GDP. If we were to take all the state and local government revenue in the United States and added it together, it wouldn't be enough to pay all the promised benefits we have offered government employees. How come democracy allowed that to happen? You also gave the very interesting example of the US Postal Service, in which um, this, a study found that when they contracted routes to private providers, they were able to do so at 50% of the cost of the US Postal Service. 
how come the U.S. Postal Service continues to operate inefficiently even when we have a democracy? This will lead to another point that I want to go into greater depth later on, which is I think what this shows is that democracy alone is insufficient to bring about sufficient accountability for government leaders, insiders, elected officials, regulators, to bring about the public interest. And the way I define public interest is human flourishing and human happiness. Democracy alone doesn't seem to be enough. I think that some readers of the book may have gotten the impression that the book was suggesting that the responsiveness, the unresponsiveness of political insiders might be purely the result of them seeking their own benefits. Certainly the way I've been talking about it thus far gives that impression, and I don't mean to suggest that's the only reason. I think far more often political leaders, elected officials, regulators are doing what they're doing because they believe that it's the best thing for the American public, or they, they believe that that's true. It doesn't mean it is, <laughs> but they, they have that, that good intention in mind. In many cases, the growth of government in terms of regulations passed, um, expanded government spending, additional government provision of services, hiring more workers to administer new government programs is all under, done under the banner of doing good for children, the poor, the elderly, the vulnerable. It's driven by a desire to help people, uh, to help people and often is in line with what we think the public wants. In examples like Venezuela and Argentina, democratically elected leaders nationalize industries in their economy and set price controls. But those very policies actually are in line with what many rank-and-file Americans would wish um, those types of policies, price controls and nationalization, are in line with what many rank-and-file Americans say they might want um, when they're not confronted with costs. When we talk about nationalizing industries like healthcare, just the other day, I was reading an article from a Columbia University professor, no less, in which he advocates for the nationalization of Facebook, uh, which was very surprising, um, price controls. How many people tell you that they hate rent-controlled buildings? Economists, they'll tell you that. But people who are living in them like price-controlled buildings. We see price controls in healthcare, and public polling shows that when not presented with any costs, People like price controls in healthcare, even though rigorous academic studies show that price controls in healthcare cause massive distortions in the market and threaten to undermine the exchanges for Americans. Spending in education. We've more than doubled spending per pupil on students over the past several decades and have gotten basically no increase in test, in test scores. However, a Kaiser Family Foundation survey found that 67% of Americans want us to increase spending for education even more. Why? Because nobody knows that we have more than doubled spending and that it has had no effect, no benefit. It's because they don't know that. Um, Part of what I'm getting at is that democracy isn't very good at sorting out all the costs and benefits, and that even though these policies may be desired, when people are presented with the costs, they often turn against those policies. So when government insiders pursue them, 
they may do so under the banner of saying, this is what the people want. I believe this, that this will help people. However, empirical research shows that these very policies are the ones that damage, um, that slow economic growth, slow innovation, create rigidities and stagnation, and harm human flourishing. And the reason why I think this happens is that democracy, we're not able to have a good conversation about trade-offs and costs. If we have price controls in healthcare, or we have price controls on gasoline, what are the effects of that? And when politicians seek office, they usually don't talk about their policies in terms of the costs. Not necessarily because they're bad intention, they may not even know what the costs are. But when we elect leaders, they usually do so as though they're offering only benefits. So democracy, despite having more accountability, fails to have total accountability because people don't know what the costs are of what they're um, electing to office. Some political scientists will say, look, there is sufficient accountability in democracy to deal with this problem of insiders exploiting the system. They'll say, we have the party system, and if things get bad enough, you can kick one party out of office and bring another party in. And we've seen that happen over and over again. I would argue that this is a flawed <laughs> argument. What if the EPA is doing an excellent job, but the Department of Housing and Human De Development is doing a poor job? Who do I kick out of office? Do I, it's the same political party in the executive branch. Um, suppose at the state level, my governor is doing an excellent job dealing with public education, but has done nothing to deal with the unfunded liability crisis in the state. Do I vote her out of office or not? Democratic voting is too blunt of a tool to really measure, to show my displeasure with things that are going wrong and to reward um, elected leaders and unelected regulators for the things that they do right. I think that when we use examples like Iran, Venezuela, and these other countries that do not have fully functioning democracies um, in the current day, we sometimes take the heat off people here, where we think, well, if only they had a fully functioning democracy, that would solve the problem. But I think this book really um, instead makes a different point, which is that even when you have a fully functioning democracy, it's not sufficient to be able to address the problems of accountability and responsiveness of government to the people. What is needed are strong institutions in addition to democracy, which Mark went into on one of your final slides. Um, and I'm hoping during the Q&A we can talk more about what democracy needs, even a fully functioning democracy needs, in order to address the problems of unresponsiveness and to bring greater accountability to democracy. So with that, I will now turn the time over to Q&A. We have microphones that will be brought to you. If you have a question, um, please raise your hand. Um, form your question with a question mark at the end, if you can. And um, I think we have about 10 minutes for Q&A. Hi, Robert Schroeder with International Investor. I'm sorry I came in late. Uh, my, my first question is, I hope Cato will have those slides available at some point. Thank you. Um, the internet is a great tool that could provide more transparency. 
Is it possible, and I don't know if your book touches on this, not having read it yet, but is it possible that it could be brought to bear to open up all sorts of activities like the bidding process, uh, announcing who the winner is uh, after the fact, showing that they, that truly was the lowest price, et cetera. In other words, uh, using the power of the internet and transparency to try to pull some of the power away from the small bureaucrats and large bureaucrats who now possess it. It's a great question. I would argue, yes, it uh, promotes greater transparency, benchmarking. Um, there's a recent book out by Micklewaith arguing pretty strongly that uh, we should be optimistic for that reason, that what we see on a broader basis in the Arab Spring and social media, uh, it's also a way to measure the productivity of government. Um, but then there's still, um, uh, let's say you look at EDS that uh, beat IBM consistently because their strategy under Ross Perot was to litigate whenever the DOD didn't award the contract to the lowest price bidder. So you could measure price, but it was harder to measure quality of service, which IBM during those decades. And so what you also want to bring to bear is what knowledge do we need, not just what data, uh, so we make the best informed decisions. And if, uh, if it's a blunt instrument, uh, Kelman at the Harvard Kennedy School would argue uh, uh, government contracting shot itself in the foot for a number of decades by just focusing on what's the least cost bidder that you, you want the full performance set of metrics. But it, it's a great question. Actually, there is a question, I think, right over here. Maybe I didn't see that correctly. Do you have a question? Thank you. Um, okay, this may be off the wall or off the point, but I'm thinking, could there be, when you're talking about the dip, the lapse in autocracies and democracies, I'm thinking, what could be a further outside injection that would help the democracy. I'm thinking for some reason the word innovation is coming to my mind. Would there be some way that the concept of innovation that's really a strength of America could somehow be injected into government processes that would make the inside of government more responsive? And, and it's a great question, too, and um, cautiously optimistic, both not on, the, or not just on the trend toward democracy, but there are ways, even looking at groups like Transparency International, of keeping score on a variety of dimensions that uh, we've seen those institutions crop up over the last several decades. Uh, Big data can be harnessed to look at the efficiency of healthcare delivery, uh, educational delivery. Um, in a recent book, uh, Terry Moe and John Chubb argue that technology is going to be the solution in the education sphere. Um, I haven't yet seen it, but there, uh, or as much as uh, as hopes in the book, but uh, there are some glimmers there that uh, would argue give us cause for optimism. And and given we have more opportunities to experiment here. 
uh, in keeping with our founding, our founders. We want to promote that that experimentation and then and then cross-checking where is it working, where is it not working. And let me just answer one thing, uh, both Jonathan, uh, the image that came to mind in his comments, if you've seen Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, movie about Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> passage of the 13th Amendment, it was messy. And yet a good thing came out of that of people coming to that marketplace, quote unquote, together. And at the same time, uh, I still keep coming back to this Deirdre McCloskey statistic that most of us in this room would agree uh, we want to provide opportunity. We want to steer income to less privileged folks in our society. And her um, question is, uh, suppose we agree a quarter of the federal government's tax take, $1 trillion, goes just below, just, just to people below the poverty line. Um, if that happened, the average family of four would be making $120,000 a year below the poverty, that are right now below the poverty line. And the reason for her pointing that out is, yes, it's a market, yes, we should provide ownership, but when we look at actual outcomes, even in a, a well-functioning democracy, uh, some of the intent, progressive as it may be, if we want to promote trust, if we want to promote social mobility, we should be asking ourselves questions about how is this the way the market's meeting that actually gets us to those goals. question that's been, been bugging me for, for a while, and I'm hoping with such an intelligent panel you might be able to answer it. Is it possible, and has anyone done any work on the possibility of building a completely uncapturable government system? Impossible and undesirable. It's very important that government be captured, and that not only includes constitutional means, of the kind that Madison envisions, but it includes social means of lots of people having lots of stake in the continuity and success of that government. And that's one of the reasons it's so important that we have all those appropriations bills and all those committees and all those interest groups and all those lobbies swarming down here within reason to make sure that they have skin in the game. And I'd agree on the impossible part, but uh, less so on the undesirable part. <laughs> I think that's also, I mean, a classic argument for why you want to limit the scope of what government can do, even if it does do the things that Jonathan is describing, if it's still limited in what it's doing, in the number of provisions that it provides, the services it provides that it has a monopoly over, if there are fewer of those, um, there are less opportunities um, for this, these types of problems to occur. Yeah, I, and I should say that's a point of agreement among us. When you get into the framework of should government be doing somewhat less, should it be more competitive and so on, I think you'll find a lot of agreement on this panel and in this room. The trouble I have with the entire public interest framing, which I think you also adopted, Emily, I was interested to hear that, is it encourages this kind of blue sky utopian thinking of the kind with all respect to the questioner I, I hear all the time. Well. Could we imagine some other planet, some other kind of government, something pristine and perfect that somehow transmits the will of the people, whatever that is perfectly? The whole thought experiment blows us off course and gets us off the real mission, which is to figure out how to get some gosh darn entitlement reforms through Congress. And that's gonna be a messy incremental transactional process, but that's where we need to be focused. I have a question right here. 
Uh, thank you. My name is Peter Shutley, and I'm a retired government bureaucrat, 24 years in the State Department, and then 15 years at Brookings teaching government people how to work in Congress. So lots of government experience. And two comments. One is I met a lot of government people. I can hardly give you the name of anybody who went into government to get rich. If you want to make money, if you want to feather your own nest, you go into business. You don't go into government. A second point, and this is a question, two variables, I think, cause a majority of the problems. One is the public ignorance of issues. And I'm thinking just of two current public opinion polls. 40% of the American public thinks that the Russians had nothing to do with our last election, when you got 17 intelligence agencies all saying they did. A majority, second one, a majority of Republicans think that Obama is a Muslim. My point is those absurdly wrong opinion polls change the political process and affect Congress and affect the system and cause all kinds of distortions. And I didn't see that variable in your analysis at all. Maybe I misunderstood some of it, but to me, that is a much bigger source of problem and, and lack of civic education. That is a real huge problem, which again, I didn't see in your, in your analysis. Yeah, the imperfectness of information does lead to um, perverse outcomes. And we'll also thank you for your service. There is nothing that uh, is intended. Uh, people inside government, and if anything would agree with you, uh, government doesn't have the equity rewards that the business sector does. So what motivates people could argue is more non-pecuniary than pecuniary objectives. All that said would still encourage us, notwithstanding all that good intention, uh, we still have to worry about when we insulate people on the supply side or structures, are we doing right? Are we generating the best possible outcomes? And constantly raising those questions about to what extent is the system performing on behalf of the broader public? So. Well, thank you. I think that concludes our book forum today. Thank you for coming. And the author will be around for a few extra minutes to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you.